Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. And today I'm speaking with Kelsey Rubin Datelov, Assistant Professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures at the University of Southern California, and we'll be speaking about her recent book, The Epistolary Art of Catherine the Great. Dr. Rubin Datelov, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you. Uh, now, you've been writing and publishing about Catherine the Great for some time. Uh, when did your interest in her originate? And can you talk a little bit about the process that led to you writing this book? Sure, yeah. So my interest in Catherine began actually when I was an undergraduate at Oxford. Um, I was interested really quite early on in the 18th century. So I was sort of fascinated with the combination of frivolity and seriousness that one finds in the 18th century. So the ways in which, you know, if you look at 18th century art, it's all pink and gold and frilly. Um, but at the same time, you've got all these really important ideas um, being really formulated uh, for the first time. Um, you know, <laughs> liberty um, from pursuit of happiness, all of these kinds of things um, are really, really happening at this time. Um, so when, uh, and I should say I was studying French and Russian, um, and that's also a perfect um, combination. So the 18th century is when, you know, Russia and France really meet. Um, and so my mentor at Oxford, um, Nicholas Kronk, uh, suggested that I write an extended essay on Catherine, and I got hooked. Um, and so I went on um, to write my master's thesis and my dissertation um, on Catherine, uh, and then that eventually turned into the book. Um, and along the way, I guess I really also got further interested in the question of whether or not Russia participated in the Enlightenment. So, you know, all these questions that we have today about how Russia relates to the West, that really complicated relationship, all that got started uh, in the 18th century. So I think it's really important to study this 18th century in order to understand the present. Um, and Catherine's just a perfect figure for that. Um, you know, she combines um, frivolity and seriousness in a way. She com- she's, you know, someone who is a Westerner, but also is a Russian. Um, she's a true child of the, of the Enlightenment in her ability to combine a very much a cosmopolitan outlook um, with patriotism. You know, she really wanted um, to make Russia an equal interlocutor in um, the bigger conversations of the Enlightenment. Uh, yeah. One, one last thing I guess I could say is that despite what one might think, Catherine's actually a really 
congenial person to spend one's days with. So, you know, when you're writing a book on something, somebody you want to, you know, be able to not mind spending your whole life with this person. And, you know, she she's a ruthless politician, yes, but she really succeeded in politics by being an incredibly charming and engaging person. And I think that I sort of got charmed by her um, as working as I was working on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so of course, we'll come back to this question, but just sort of a generally, how does her correspondence specifically help us to understand or re-evaluate her place in the 18th century? Traditional approaches to Catherine's participation in the Enlightenment tend to really look, okay, did she um, implement in some kind of reforms a particular set of ideas that we associate with the Western Enlightenment, and particularly with the French philosophe, um, who I think we'll come back to later. And you know, this is obviously very important to see, okay, what did her concrete reforms do? Um, how did they relate to the ideas that were around? But I think it's also not the whole story um, in a way. And so if we look at Catherine's letters, we can think about the Enlightenment as a big international conversation um, about you know what is it to be human uh, and how can we improve our lives in this world. And I think that Catherine's letters are really the, the key means by which she joined in um, that conversation. So the letters encourage us to see Catherine not just as a passive recipient of other people's ideas, um, but really as someone who took ideas, you know, she read constantly um, and creatively reworked them. So she calls herself an awkward mind, an esprit gauche um, in French. Um, and what that and what, what that means is that she sort of just she she refuses to take what other people say um, whole scale. She's gonna she's going to she insists on her own agency as a thinker. Um, and I think the other thing that reading the letters can really do, I guess, for Catherine's legacy. Uh, is that the letters are, as I argue in my book, her le- literary masterpiece. So she's been dismissed continuously for you know for a long time as a bad writer. Um, in a way, she's a, a victim of you know, gendered stereotypes um, about you know women not you know women's exclusion from um, the literary canon in general. Um, it, and I think you know she falls into that category. And Catherine actually she wrote constantly. She knew that she was a graphomaniac. She called herself a graphomaniac. Um, you know, she wrote plays, she wrote fairy tales, she wrote journalism, she wrote her really remarkable memoirs. But I think that her letters are really a, a masterpiece, as I said, in the sense that she develops a totally unique voice. Um, she, ad- she really expresses fully her identity as a leader and as a thinker. Um, she's constantly experimenting um, with form. Um, and she's really aware of everything you can do with the letter, with the epistolary text, um, and she makes the most of it. Um, so I think that really um, looking at her letters can totally transform our sense of um, who she was and what she accomplished. And what was your research process like? So f- studying letters is fundamentally different um, from studying, say, the novels of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, right? So when you study, you know, literature as we think of it, when you study novels, you've got a text that's pretty much fixed. You're pretty sure it's complete normally. Again, there are always exceptions to these things. Um, With letters, you're dealing inevitably with something that's fragmentary. You will never have the entirety of of a correspondence. Um, and so I think, you know, one of, you know, we can think, you know, you know, if we think about the modern world, right, um, if you were to try and collect every single email or text message you ever sent, and then read it all, 
and try and make sense of that evidence and sort of tell some kind of story about the identity you were trying to fashion through all of these communications, it would be really hard. Um, and it's, it's really the same. <laughs> and, and so it's kind of the same for Catherine, right? So she, um, we have to, when dealing with her, you really have to, you know, accept the fragmentariness of letters um, and learn and figure out how to make an argument based on those bits you have. And of course, context becomes really important in a way that, you know, you can do a reading of a novel, for example, in total isolation. Um, you can do that on a letter, um, but it's going to be um, pretty incomplete. It's, you know, it's also part of everyday life as well as a literary text. And so it's some, it's getting that balance between um, the two right, um, I think is, is one of the, the big challenges um, in dealing um, in researching uh, letters. Um, so yeah, basically in terms of the actual process, you know, it was reading, reading all the letters I could get my hands on and there are lots of them. Um, and, you know, one of the issues is that is also that there is no sort of no single standard edition of Catherine's letters. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of editions. Um, there are also archival materials. Uh, and so it's very, it's a very dispersed corpus. Uh, it's something, and it would take, you know, probably, more than one lifetime, um, definitely more than one lifetime, um, to do a full edition of all of these. Um, so I had to make decisions about, um, which aspects of Catherine to deal with. You know, she's an oversized figure. Um, and one always have, and I was interested in particular in her use of the epistolary form and in her image projection through that. And so, um, I worked through the materials and also, you know, what the letters that I have and through, you know, the context and sort of learned everything I could about her intellectual context in particular. Um, and then I've also got, um, another, a further project that I'm working on um, in terms of making the letters easier to access for researchers, because I think that her, her letters have been really underexploited um, by researchers. Uh, and so I'm currently working with Professor Andrew Kahn at Oxford um, on what we call CatCore, uh, which is a, a project for a, a searchable digital database cont containing all of Catherine's um, currently available letters. Um, so this will involve you know, digitizing, annotating, and presenting to readers in an accessible way um, all of these all of these materials. And the, I think that this will, you know, I, in my book, I use the sort of the preliminary results from this project. Um, and I think that as it grows, we'll really be able to, to map Catherine's epistolary world um, better and see a lot of connections. Um, that we, I, think, I think it's an ongoing project in many ways. And we'll put a link in the uh, description of this podcast to that project. Uh, now, uh, now, in terms of the way that uh, the letter is read or the letter as a genre, you discuss in your book that there's this tendency both for academic and non-academic readers to either misread or sort of misunderstand the letter like a straightforward historical document. So how does your study depart from this analysis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so people, you know, people typically you know, we want to assume that these are, are truth, right? That these text letters give us, you know, certain facts about what people did on a particular day and what they thought about certain things. But that's unfortunately just not the case, right? Letters are texts, you know, they necessarily shape the truth in a particular way to suit particular rhetorical purposes. Um, they are, you know, the, the information is in some way shaped as well, according to the identity of the addressee, right? So it's a dialogical, it's inherently dialogical. Um, 
And also one needs to pay a lot of attention um, to the codes of communication that are used in a particular society or culture. And again, these are things that can be very contextual. Um, And so basically my project aims, really focuses on these features. So, you know, the codes of communication in the letter, um, the ways in which identity, Catherine's identity is modulated um, according to her particular purposes and, you know, how she creates a, a coherent identity across the texts. Um, and, and so I think that that's, that's quite different from the traditional reading, you know, mining of the letter uh, for, for historical facts, basically. Uh, you discuss in your book that there's a tendency for both uh, academic and non-academic readers to misread or misunderstand the letter as sort of a straightforward historical document. So how does your study depart from this analysis? Yeah, so basically, as you, as you just said, I think people typically assume that letters tell us the truth, that they're going to tell us, you know, that they're, they're, they're things that come out of daily life. So they, you know, they tell us what people do on a daily basis. They, they give us perhaps somebody's opinions about certain things. Um, but that's not really, that doesn't tell us everything about the letter, right? So letters are texts. That means that they necessarily shape the truth in a particular way in order to suit the purposes, the rhetorical purposes of the writer in that particular instance. They also, so what, what is in a letter is shaped by the identity of the addressee. So the, the, the letter is inherently a dialogical um, form, and that complicates any any notion of truth um, within them in some sense. Um, and then also letters are products of particular codes of communication that are used in um, a particular society or culture. Um, and so my book really, in my book, I really focus on these latter, these these new ver- new ideas about letters as text, the ways in which thinking about letters as text can change our understanding of what they can tell us about um, a particular historical figure um, and the way that we understand those texts. What are some of the methodologies from epistolary uh, studies that you used and found most helpful? In Slavic, in the field of Slavic, we actually we don't have a lot of um, studies of letters yet. I think it's something that we're really just discovering. But in French, English, German, in other fields, people have um, in the past thirty years really gotten fascinated um, by the letter as a form, um, and it really makes sense given our you know in our contemporary world we you know we we live on social media. We're really aware of social networks, you know, Twitter, all messaging apps, all these things. Um, and so we can really understand why people are really interested in the letter now. Um, but it turns out that actually thinking about networks, for example, really works for looking at the 18th century. Um, and be, you know, because it's an age of a sort of explo- communications explosion. It's the age of the letter. You know, people are network able to network across broad, you know, actually across really vast distances. Um in a way that it was never possible before. Um, and so if we think about Catherine, she's really a master networker. She always chooses um, her correspondence very carefully. So Voltaire, for instance, is of interest not just for what he could say about her and her, his published writings. You know, yes, he was famous for what he published, but also um, because he gave Catherine access to a network of intellectuals and also to you know, his connections at the French court, for example, like the Duc de Richelieu. Um, and so Catherine is in, in deciding to you know, cultivate 
Voltaire, she's actually trying to get into a much broader network beyond him. And she's very aware of that sort of things. And we can see in, in lots of instances where she's partic- you know, manipulating uh, the network in some way, choosing in particular where to intervene. Um, another sort of theoretical approach to letters um, that I found really helpful was that of um, a sociologist Liz Stanley. Um, And she came up with this idea of the epistolarium, uh, which it's really a way of theorizing the problem that I was talking about earlier of letters as, and correspondence as inherently fragmentary. Um, and she, she suggests that we can think about a person's epistolarium on sort of at least three levels. So an epistolarium can be just the, the evidence that we have, not organized, just lying around in editions and archives and so forth. Um, it's just that, that record, those traces of what somebody did. Um, but then we can think about the epistolarium as something that we as you know, researchers or as, as readers organize in some way. We curate this, the, um, this collection of information. Um, we make sense of, this, of these texts. We um, create narrative. We see what the narratives are that emerge um, from this body of material. Um, and then finally, we can think about the epistolarium as that sort of virtual ideal world, right? What would this whole, epi- the, this whole correspondence have looked like um, if we actually had all of the communications, um, all of this person's communications with everybody at all times? Um, and so we can attempt to, to a certain degree, reconstruct um, what, that, um, what that would have looked like. Uh, now, in terms of some of the standards, you mentioned before that there were certain standards and etiquette of letter writing among the European elite in the 18th century that Catherine was participating in. So how did the Enlightenment kind of shape these standards and how did Catherine uh, employ them in her letters? Yeah, so in, in we, if we look at letters in the Enlightenment, we kind of, there are a lot, of, a lot of things that we can think about, but I think one of the central problems is the issue of balancing the realities of extremely hierarchical social structures with an enlightenment taste for informality, conviviality, um, equality, you know, giving some sense of equality between people participating in a conversation. Uh, and so, you know, if we look at a letter, one can think of hierarchy being expressed oftentimes in the beginning and in, in the end. So when we say, you know, today, I think we, we've sort of smoothed this out. We always say, dear so-and-so, best wishes, so-and-so. Um, but in the 18th century, these openers and closes are places for expressing relationships, um, right? So a lot of people, you know, one of the most typical signature in the 18th century is probably, you know, a way of closing on, a closer in the 18th century is your most humble servant, right? So that's expressing the fact that you're, in, you're inferior socially to the person that you are addressing. But of course, somebody of Catherine's status is not inferior to anyone. Um, and so she, in a way, can't always use... Um, the standard etiquette. Uh, and so she has to um, make use of the rather narrow um, set of um, formulae that she can use um, and try somehow to express her relationships um, creatively. Um, and one interesting um, way of thinking about this is that you know, she, one example of this is uh, she always had to address other monarchs as brother or sister. Um, so European rulers imagine themselves to be one big family. Um, oftentimes they were related, um, but it's also kind of this idea of um, 
you know, uh, the Christian family, Christendom, and the, you know, the, some kind of um, collaboration. And that, this, of course, didn't um, prevent any wars by any means. Um, but it would be, of course, very interesting if we thought of, you know, the U.S. president talking to the German chancellor, um, you know, brother and sister. Um, but, you know, Catherine does this and she, you know, and she, she uses this uh, and she can add, you know, she can add phrases, you know, she'll have to, if someone is actually her cousin, she'll say, okay, my dear brother and cousin. Um, but then, you know, if she adds my dear brother and ally, um, that's something. Um, if that, if that phrase disappears, that sends quite another message about, you know, the, the rupture of a relationship. Um, so that can be, you know, that you can, you have to sort of trace through context the way, you know, why, why is this particular world? Why does she sign off as your ally? Um, or why does she, um, insist on a particular formula? Um, when writing to lower ranking people, so like Voltaire, um, she really has almost no options at all of what she can say. Um, and so rather than saying something, you know, harsh, she'll try and be friendly by using a formula like farewell, be well. Um, and this is kind of interestingly an equivalent of the Latin phrase vale, um, you know, so be well in a way. Um, and so if we, we can find these little phrases and that seem pretty innocuous, but actually it suggests that she's playing at living in a sphere of equality, right? So vale would have been used in Rome, so in a republic, right? So it creates just, you know, using these kinds of formula suggests, okay, we are on some level equal. We can have a conversation um, between equals in this correspondence. And how did people learn these standards, both Catherine and the people she was writing with? Uh, what were some of the uh, epistolary manuals that they read? How did they know sort of what category of letter to send for what occasion? Mm-hmm. So, the epistolary manual um, is really, again, it's, a, it's something that's very important in the 18th century. Um, the 18th century is a time when people are becoming more and more literate. Um, so writing is, is seen as a tool of social mobility. Um, and so epistolary manuals were um, essentially health, self-help books um, that would teach people to write the kind of letters they needed to get places in society. Um, and so these books would contain, you know, a lot of sample letters categorized according to function, right? Some of these functions are very familiar to us, things like letters of recommendation or um, invitations, condolences, congratulations. Um, but others of these forms are quite unusual. Um, you know, so we've uh, we don't really write letters of compliment or exhortation or reproof. Uh, we, we might include those things in um, other kinds of letters, but we don't think of them as types of letters anymore. Um, now, these kinds of books were thought of as being for social climbers, right? So somebody of Catherine's rank would never admit to um, having looked at one of these, basically. Um, but the reality is that she was also perfectly aware of these categories, right? These were these were simply things that were instilled. You know, she learned more through copying out um, when she was learning how to write. Her she had a French governess, and she also had a uh, French Huguenot. Um, she also had a, a French uh, writing master, uh, and they had her copy out, for example, seventeenth-century letters uh, written by. Um, men of letters, women of letters, um, and also princes and princesses. Um, and so she absorbed these categories in a way um, through her reading, through her practice of writing. 
Um, and we can find her playing, doing really um, interesting things with this. And I discuss in my book the example of her first letter to Grigory Pachomkin, who was, um, he became her um, lover, possible secret husband, and certainly her most trusted and important deputy throughout um, throughout her career. Um, and so at the time when she started the relationship with him, he was off fighting in a war. Um, and she basically summons him back to St. Petersburg. Um, but she does this very subtly. Um, so she can't just, it would be, look really weird if she wrote to a subordinate, hey, I'd like to start a relationship with you, come back. Um, and so what she did was she wrote to him a pretty standard, in some ways, letter of advice saying, you know, please look after after yourself at war. You know, your life is valuable to, you know, you can you can do important things in, in the future. And this, these are, you know, she uses basically, you know, in a way, cliches of this genre. But it's the context that makes the difference in a way that, you know, the fact that this is a ruler, this is the sovereign writing to him saying, you know, look after yourself, that says everything that lets him know that this is an invitation to get personal, um, but without actually putting anything on paper that could be taken amiss in any way if, you know, things were not, you know, didn't work out, if this um, letter got into the wrong hands. You know, there's nothing. There's nothing, you know, that anyone could find wrong with it. Um, so it's quite important, actually, to be aware of these, um, uh, the way in which letters were thought about um, at the time, in order to read these letters. It's it's fascinating, and it really does underline um, how kind of what a surface level interpretation it is, just to see them as historical documents, right? Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, now, you mentioned before um, this uh, important idea of self-fashioning, right, uh, that everybody was doing when they were writing letters. So can you talk a bit about what that is and how Catherine did it and why it was important to her role as a monarch? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, the idea of self-fashioning um, comes from Stephen Greenblatt, of course. Um, it's sort of, you know, typically associated actually with the Renaissance, but it helps, um, I think, to think also about um, the behavior of uh, the elite in um, the 18th century. Um, so in Catherine's case, right, so Catherine's uh, self-fashioning is a sense that she's presenting herself through these letters in particular ways, um, as a, basically as a civilized European, someone who is at the forefront of European culture, reading the latest books, um, and discussing them intelligently. And this has, um, there are a lot of reasons why she's doing this. Um, you know, so one of them, uh, is, that she wants to change perceptions of Russia. So Russia at the in the 18th century is seen as backward, non-European, um, and Catherine, as the absolute ruler of Russia, is in a sense she is in a sense Russia. You know, so this is a world in which you know we think of Louis the Fourteenth, l'état c'est moi, I am the state. So what she is, Russia is too. And so by shaping herself, by making herself, um, making people perceive her as a civilized European. She's saying, my country is also civilized. But it's also something much broader than that, that, you know, in the 18th century, um, traditional notions of nobility, right, social you know, hierarchy are, are breaking down, right? So it's no longer, it's oftentimes no longer considered sufficient to have, you know, to be of a certain bloodline. Um, and so people start thinking about ways in which nobility um, can be a personal thing, right? That we earn our nobility through, you know, cultivating ourselves, that we are, we should be um, more refined, um, more noble in a, in a moral sense um, than 
than others in a way. And so um, Catherine's sort of performance of civility, it's something that she completely absorbs. She completely believes in it. So it's, you know, self-fashioning is something that uh, may not be, you know, it's not just play acting, it's lived and experienced, um, but it also sends a message, right? The way that you um, talk, the way that you behave um, is uh, is meaningful um, in some sense. And this is something that I think we oftentimes don't perceive when we think about Catherine today. It's very, you know, the, the codes of, of self-fashioning today, obviously they exist, but they're very different. And so it's easy for us to, you know, people focus when talking about Catherine a lot on, you know, her sex appeal, um, her thirst for power. Um, we just really have trouble, I think, today imagining a world in which fashioning oneself as a ruler, as intellectual and civil was sort of the best possible publicity. Um, this is something that I think is hard for us to grasp today. So again, it, it requires that context. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Uh, and connected to um, self-fashioning is the employment of certain personas in her writing, right? Depending on her relationship with the addressee and what she was trying to get out of the letter. Uh, so could you talk a bit about how these personas were crafted and particularly the role that gender played? Okay. Yeah. So Catherine, right? So we think about, when we think about, you know, gender in the 18th century. I'm going to go straight there um, in your question because I think it's an illustrative example. Um, it's um, you know, Gender is a complicated problem. We think in the 18th century, oftentimes we rightly um, f- focus on the constraints placed on women's, um, you know, the roles that women can play, the persona in a way that they can take on um, in society. Now, Catherine is a sovereign. So this puts her in a very different place um, than a lot of other women. Um, it puts her in a certain sense above gender. That now that's that one shouldn't exaggerate how free she was, absolutely. But what it meant was that she had a certain amount of freedom um, to adopt both masculine and feminine persona as need be. So she's her her approach to gender comes across, I think, as exceptionally flexible. Um, and so she's able to, you know, she writes, for example, to Madame Geoffrin, uh, a Parisian salon hostess, um, and she'll tell her all about how, you know, how similar their days are, that they, you know, they get up, they receive guests, they do handiwork, um, they listen to people reading to them. So she'll, she's able to sort of you know, and she'll, you know, she'll talk about, um, you know, she can be, she's almost sort of flirty when she talks to Madame Geoffrin. So she, 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 even talking to a woman, she'll go back and forth between being, you know, emphasizing how feminine she is just like her. And then in other cases, she'll sort of pretend to be seducing Madame Geoffrin in some sense. And so she'll, she, 
and it's just you know it varies with what she's trying to get across to her in a particular instance and and i think that she has a certain amount of freedom to do that um you know, she she uses her gender in a way to create a sense of proximity um, with Madame Giafant to sort of overcome um, the the distance that one automatically feels between a monarch um, and uh, a and an ordinary person. Um, and I think also in this sense, it's in it's useful to look at other monarchs, though other sovereign female sovereigns, because it it brings out the ways in which Catherine's persona is very, very particular. Um, so one example of that is Empress Maria Theresa um, in Austria. Um, and she's fascinating. It's fascinating to compare them because, um, because they make, the two women make quite opposite choices in how they want to portray themselves. So Maria Theresa, of course, has 16 children um, and she comes across as, you know, she insists on her role as mother. Um, she's very negative about herself in many ways that Catherine is certainly not. Um, and, but what comes through in her letters, through the way that she presents herself as kind of as a mother, essentially, um, is really not so much that she's a woman, but that the way that she thinks about her power, right? So Maria Theresa comes to the throne because she's a Habsburg, right? So she's part of a dynasty and she understands her role as perpetuating a dynasty. Um, and so choosing to be the, this gender role of mother um, matches that idea and expresses that idea. Whereas Catherine, of course, she's a usurper. She overthrew her husband um, in order to take the throne. She's she's not actually part of the imperial family. Um, and so she can't call on that. She calls instead on this persona of an intellectual woman. So, you know, someone who uh, may be a salon hostess or in any case, um, someone who's involved in culture, right? So a, a patron of the arts, that sort of thing. Um, and she chooses that in order to exhibit her uh, personal qualifications to rule, right? The, re the reason that the thing that she needs to prove is that she personally um, deserves to be on this throne. And she does that precisely through her persona as a refined, cultivated person, someone um, that can appeal to her elite and also appeal to, um, to Europeans in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned Voltaire. Who are some of her other most frequent correspondents? Um, so one that I really enjoy um, is her correspondence with Friedrich Melchior Grimm, um, who's obviously German, um, but spent, um, he became, basically became French. Um, and you know, he spent many years in Paris, um, wrote a lot in French. He was a man of letters. He was an international networker. Um, he visited Russia twice and really hit it off um, with Catherine. He became essentially her cultural, he became her cultural agent uh, in Europe. Um, and so in a way, I, I enjoy these letters because you know, when she writes to Voltaire, she's she's actually quite, they're, they're brilliant letters, but they can be a little bit, they're very dense. They're very, sometimes, you know, they, they insist on decorum, right? She's never, she doesn't let her hair down um, with Voltaire. When she's writing to Grimm, she definitely does. Um, you know, she writes to him, she ends up, the, the it develops into a real, really important relationship. She writes almost daily to Grimm. She, she writes a single letter for about three, you know, three months at a time and she'll put little, you know, add a little something, you know, her daily sort of diary entry, um, in her letter. Um, and so, and I think, and then she would have these letters carried by special couriers so that no one could spy on them. Um, and in these letters, she, um, reflects a lot on her own role as an enlightened empress, but also she experiments a lot with, 
voice and form in in really unique ways um you know she'll she'll take on different voice she'll pretend to be a pedant or she'll pretend to you know to sort of look at herself from the outside um you know she'll talk about her dogs as though they're human beings which is just fun um she'll you know she she's got a whole riff a whole letter that's just a riff on a version of beauty and the beast for example so they're very literary letters um really fascinating so they both contain you know more um sort of confessional, if you will, um, passages and contain a lot more, you know, experimental, um, literary, um, passages. Uh, and so that's why I really enjoy, um, the letters to Grimm. Um, another really important correspondence is of course that with Pachomkin, who I mentioned earlier, um, the, her love letters are really kind of not what you would expect, um, from, you know, Catherine's reputation as, um, you know, someone who, you know, again, the reputation of, uh, you know, ex- a reputation that overemphasizes her sex appeal again, or her sex life. Um, you know, her letters are not, you know, debauched um, in any way. They're really funny. Um, you know, so she'll send, um, you know, so she'll send a joke um, essentially to Patomkin. You know, she'll she'll you know write. Oh, I was sleepwalking yesterday, and I saw this really beautiful man. I think that you should you know get up out of bed and look to the right where there's this mirror, and you'll see the beautiful man that I saw. Right. So she'll you know she'll she'll make it come. You know, she 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 manages to seduce him essentially through humor and play with her her identity. Um, and I think that that's um, what's so interesting about reading Patomkin, the letters um, to Patomkin. Uh, now, in terms of sort of, I guess, the more direct uh, political uh, aspect of her letters, uh, what role did they play in her political diplomacy and her military maneuvers? I mean, basically, you know, again, if we think about the 18th century, letters are the means of communication at a distance, right? So everything that she's doing, you know, controlling her empire relies on sending letters, you know, directing, you know, with, you know obviously as a woman, she can't lead an army the way that a lot of um, male monarchs did, although that's starting, that practice is starting to um, disappear uh, across the 18th century. Um, but so she has to direct um, direct her generals at a distance, and she does that, obviously, by letter. Um, and I think, you know, but the, if we look west, again, she's directing her diplomats by letter, um, but she's also corresponding. I've, I mentioned um, monarchical correspondence earlier. You know, she's there's the expectation that people who are allies if you your countries are allied, the two rulers will exchange letters as brothers and sisters, um, essentially to give um, yeah uh, you know assurances of uh, continuation of the relationship and to have really high level um, negotiations. And this is this can be really entertaining. You know, she's writing to um, Frederick the Great. The two of them. Uh, are competing essentially to be the more like the better ruler, you know, who's the real enlightened monarch. Um, and, uh, and they don't trust each other at all um, and are sort of hedging around each other in various ways. And eventually Catherine um, sort of decides to uh, well, betray Frederick and turn her attention to Prussia, uh, sorry, to Austria, turn her attention away from Prussia um, and towards Austria. Um, and this is quite interesting. And I think how this happens is really interesting for the importance of the letter um, because she negotiates a treaty with Joseph II, but they can't sign it off because in order to sign a treaty, the more important person has to sign first. And neither Catherine nor Joseph II, Holy Roman Empire, is willing to admit that they're the less important ruler. And so the solution to this that Catherine comes up with is that they should exchange letters. So they should send, they send each other identical letters, they sign off on their individual letters, and the letter becomes a binding treaty. Um, and I think that this is sort of a moment in the 18th century where the letter becomes 
where we really see the power of the letter, right? That it becomes, it can be an internationally, international legally binding treaty. Um, and so I think, you know, again, Catherine was really, really aware of that, that power that the letter had, and that came, comes through in her use of it in international relations. Now, in addition to the language of the letter, you address in really fascinating detail some of the other aspects of epistolary custom that she employed or subverted uh, based on her addressee and her writing goals. So, for example, things like paper size, margin size, date placement. Uh, what is the significance of those things? Yeah, so in, you know, I think one of the really sad things about, again, emails and text messages is that we've lost that material side of communications, right? You know, the letter is an object that physically stands in for an absent person. Um, and so, you know, people, you know, Catherine and her correspondents talk about doing all kinds of things with letters, you know, carrying them around with them um, or, you know, kissing them or slipping them into people's pockets for secret transmission. Um, so there's sort of the excitement of um, what you can do with an object. Um, but then the other thing is that, um, as you say, the physical form of a letter can mean things that, you know, when we look at something um, in an edition, you know, a printed edition of letters, we might miss. Um, so... Uh, you can tell, for example, how formal a letter is by how big it is, right? So really, really formal letters are really big. Um, Catherine doesn't usually write the really, really formal letters, so she doesn't write these gigantic um, folio size um, letters. She normally writes on a uh, letter that's it's letter paper that's somewhat bigger than our sort of standard eight and a half by eleven paper, um, but it looks deceptively simple. Um, so she uses Dutch paper, which is you know a rather nice um, kind of. Uh, letter paper. And it's frequently gold edged, something that, you know, obviously ordinary people could not afford. Um, and to dry her ink, Catherine sprinkles, is, sprinkles silver powder on her letter. And so you can, and you can still sometimes find this um, attached to the letters. Um, and so if you were to get Catherine's letter, a letter from Catherine, you would you would have this sense of, I guess, restrained luxury and dignity, right? So it's not super formal, um, but it certainly lets you know through its material form um, that it's an honor um, that you should that you should not forget about. Um, and also, and again, it's 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 so important to know context, right? So format, the format of the letter is really important. So it's a sign of respect in the 18th century to start your letter, if you start the letter on the first page below halfway down the page, so you have this huge blank space at the top, um, you, you write sort of madame, and then you have this blank space, and then you start your letter. Um, and so this, and this is a sign of, as I said, of respect for your addressee. So when Catherine, for example, she's, um, when she first gets married, she writes a letter to Frederick the Great, thanking him for helping um, to arrange her marriage. Um, and she writes like that. She, she starts her letter below below halfway down the page um, to show her sort of subordination to him. But of course, again, as a an empress, she's not subordinate to anyone. And so the simple fact that she starts her letters at the top of the page, which to us would seem the totally natural thing to do, is actually meaningful in the sense that it shows that she has the right to do that, that she is not inferior um, by any means to whoever it is that she's addressing. Um, uh, and one really, in, well, one of the many interesting parts of the book is when you discuss the emergence of celebrity in 18th century Europe and the distinction between celebrity on the one hand and glory on the other in terms of the public persona and the posthumous reputation of great men and women. Uh, so how do the two concepts differ and how did Catherine merge the two in epistolary practice? 
so I'm, I use in my book um, a really helpful um, set of categories um, that's been developed by the French historian Antoine Lilti. Um, and he, so he distinguishes between reputation, celebrity, and glory. So reputation is, I mean, these are all sort of forms of fame in some sense. Um, but so reputation is fame within a sort of small group, right? So um, you're in a particular group, and if you have a reputation, you you gain that by adhering to this, the particular values, what that what that particular social group appreciates. Um, reputation is is oftentimes, you know, especially in the 18th century, it's it's through you know it's through conversation, right? So face to face, or you know through um, you know circulating manuscripts, um, you know, so by letter, right? You can you can develop reputation. Um, celebrity, on the other hand, really emerges in the 18th century, um, and it's something that has to go through media, right? So print media or, you know, mass media in some sense, you know, today, obviously, celebrity is in electronic form, um, but it's going through these media. And it's something where you don't necessarily personally know a famous person, right, a particular individual, um, but you use these media to try and get a sort of artificial sense of, of intimacy with that person. So you follow this person, not necessarily because you adhere to any values that they adhere to, but just because you're interested in them, you're curious, you want to know what they're doing in their private life. And so you'll, you know, you'll read what's printed about them in a newspaper and so forth. Um, and this is obviously, you know, something that one might want to gain for particular reasons, but also something that can be quite dangerous. Glory, according to Lilti, is something that one acquires um, posthumously. So after one's death, um, one can acquire glory by um, again, embodying particular values of a whole society, right? So one becomes a sort of, in some sense, heroic figure for um, a society. One is sort of, a, it's a figurehead it's in some sense. Um, and so Catherine, if we think about Catherine, she tries to combine all of these um, in different ways that she uses her letters. Um, so she's, in the first instance, seeking reputation. She wants to cultivate elite readers across Europe and, and also within Russia, um, who are going to be reading her letters directly. But, you know, any addressee, you know, somebody like Madame Geoffrin, who I mentioned earlier, is going to be reading aloud these letters to, you know, visitors in her house, you know, other you know, philosophes or diplomats and, you know, again, elite people um, who are going to recognize Catherine as this refined person that we've been talking about, this enlightened, you know, member of an enlightenment elite. Um, and Catherine wants to get... You know, other than the fact that she identifies as a person like them, um, she she knows that these are the influential people in Europe, and she wants reputation in those circles in order to you know influence people um, throughout, um, you know, politically, intellectually. She's aware of the dangers of celebrity, right? She, um, as a as a woman in power, you know, we can one can find some really um, remarkable examples of political cartoons. Um, mocking her when, you know, so she, she's very aware of the ways in which her, her identity, her image can be distorted, um, in, uh, in print, uh, and she needs to somehow control that. So, um, this also means maybe not writing letters for, um, the, for publication immediately. She avoids that as much as possible. Um, but what she does do is she uses her correspondence to, shape her public reputation. So again, somebody like Voltaire is super useful this way because he is a celebrity too. Um, and he writes things that are going to reach all of Europe. Um, and so he can help to shape her perceptions of her um, as a celebrity across all of Europe. 
But she's certainly also, and this is very important, thinking about glory. And this is probably what she wants above all, beyond reputation, beyond celebrity. She really wants glory. She wants to go down in history. She wants to be remembered as a great ruler. Um, so she actually, she assumes essentially that people are going to read her letters later. Um, so we even have one instance where she sends a particular exchange of letters with a general to a historian um, saying, you know, keep these, they're going to be interesting later. Um, and so she's, she wants, she, when she's writing, she's still aware. She's always, I think, aware of the fact that someday people like us are going to be reading this and that we're going to be, and she wants us to see her as someone who is really at the heart of the biggest and most important events of her day, um, which she was. Um, and also as someone who had, you know, remarkable insight into what was going on, whose personality is, you know, likable, admirable, sophisticated, all of these things. You know, so she's actually writing, reading her letters. We, we, we can see the way that she's addressing these multiple Publics, the way that she's um, seeking different types of of fame, um, with a view always always to posterity. Now, uh, the pivotal moment in Catherine's reign was the French Revolution, right? And as you detail in the later part of your book, her reaction to it has traditionally been perceived, especially in Russian language scholarship, as a rejection of the Enlightenment. So, how does her epistolary corpus from this time challenge or complicate this view? Yeah, so the use, again, letters are really important because um, they in a way allow Catherine to speak for herself, right? These are these are the texts in which she is formulating, um, you know, doing what she wants to do. They're instruments of rule, but she's also formulating her image and um, and recording what she wants to accomplish. So yeah, so people assume that in you know after 1789, Catherine becomes reactionary. Uh, loses control of affairs, falls under the thumb of her evil, much younger um, favorite, Platon Zuboff. Um, now, it's true that she writes a bit less in her later years, but this is actually not particularly surprising, given the fact that this, we, we can't forget that the French Revolution um, created chaos in, um, in Europe. Um, at this point, Catherine's old networks are dying out and are being disrupted um, by... Um, by the upheaval um, that's happening uh, in in France, um, and so what I argue is that it's not Catherine so much who changes as the world around her, right? So she's always been, as I've been arguing, a member of this Enlightenment elite. Um, she's always assumed that being a ruler, um, being an elite figure, is in no way contradictory um, it, with being um, someone who's interested in, enlighten- in Enlightenment ideas, and it's really the revolution that creates that narrative, that idea that actually you cannot be a king and, and it's, you know, someone who's interested in the enlightenment. Um, and so what's happening is that the revolution basically throws Catherine's identity as an enlightened absolutist into crisis, right? And so what she does throughout the revolution, obviously she's opposed to the revolution. Um, you know, she sees completely that this is destroying, um, everything that she understands about what she, you know, other than being a personal danger danger to her, um, is destroying the way that she understands the world as working. Um, But what's really fascinating in looking at her letters is actually how long it takes her to accept the notion that, well, yes, maybe, you know, people like Voltaire and Diderot, all of them had something to do with um, the French Revolution. So she, you know, early on, we see her... um, 
actually revisiting, um, rereading texts. You know, actually, interestingly, also she rereads Rousseau um, and finds in Rousseau um, and sort of the idea that um, we maybe can't handle freedom, right? So Rousseau, you know, talks about how. Um, how in order to make democracy work, we have to have total control of our ourselves. We need a lot of self-control in order to make democracy work. And she says, look, do you guys really know what you're asking for if you want liberty? Because you're going to have to learn how to govern yourselves and you can't do that. Um, and so, you know, so she, she looks back, she says, she says repeatedly, you know, I don't, you know, I, she says th- that basically all of these, you know, Voltaire, for example, um, speaks against all of the chaos and destruction that's happening um, in uh, in France, uh, and insist that these things are antithetical. And it's really only when um, Louis XVI gets executed, Marie Antoinette gets ex- executed subsequently, um, that Catherine starts to accept this narrative, say, well, maybe actually, you know, I need to do something about this. And so then then she does, she, she accepts it, but always he- hesitantly. She always is sort of thinking, well, maybe not. And may- maybe there's still some way in which... I can reinterpret these texts in which one can reinterpret these texts um, to give a different ending to the Enlightenment in a way. Um, so, so I think it's, it's really interesting to read her letters to see the ways in which she still um, is continuing to struggle, you know, think about all of these ideas. She's definitely not backing off um, from I- ideas um, in general. Um, and the ways in which she's still using the letter to accomplish, you know, her goal. So she she fights against the revolution precisely by um, trying to get people to do things by letter um, and by you know exploiting her skills um, with the letter. Um, so she's still totally in control. How much of her correspondence was published in her lifetime, and what were the various purposes of that publication? So very little is um, published in her lifetime. As I said, celebrity is dangerous, um, and so she didn't. You know, once you let a letter into the public, right? Once you let a text, any text, into the public sphere, into print, you lose control over how someone's going to interpret it, um, and. That was a bit dangerous, uh, obviously, for for a ruler. Right? It it, it limits your um, manu- your you know power to maneuver once um, once you lose control of your tax. So she's very wary of doing that. Um, you know, and most of the time, um, she she makes it a sort of precondition of correspondences that her addressee will not publish her letters. So her first her first ever letter to a philosophe, um, D'Alembert, um, was instantly published, um, circulated very widely, even ended up in, a, in an epistolary manual in English. Um, Catherine was not pleased. And basically this instance made her realize, in a sense, oh, wow, um, if I send a letter... I very quickly, I cannot really control where it goes. And so from then on, she writes, when she writes to people, she sort of says, before starting, you do realize you're not going to be able to publish this. Um, and so it's really only on, you know, on occasion um, that for a particular, you know, so she, she writes a letter to Marmontel, who's someone who's had his a book um, uh, censored in France. And she, she writes a letter of support that is, you know, she knows is going to be published in order, um, you know, to support this particular author. So every now and then she will allow it. Um, Voltaire try, get, tries to get away with um, publishing a lot of things, and, and he he gets scolded for it. Um, and you know, the instance of of the publication of the Voltaire correspondence, which does happen during her lifetime, um, is again illustrative that it's published against her wishes, um, and then she insists on very expensive post hoc um, censorship. 
it's not that she doesn't want her letters to be read, to let Voltaire to be read eventually, but in her lifetime, again, it comes across as immodest, first of all, right? You know, that it, she wants these texts to get to posterity, to she'll get glory when people after her death read it. It's not glorious if she publishes now. It's just, you know, she's seeking celebrity. She doesn't want to be seen that way. And also, of course, it, it can be, you know, she writes things that may be interpreted badly in terms of, you know, foreign policy, right? If she says something nasty about Austria and now they're her, you know, at the time, you know, in 1767, she says something nasty about Austria. And then, um, you know, in the 1780s, she's an ally of Austria. That doesn't go down very well. Um, and so there are always, you know, calculations of why, you know, why it's not a great idea to have these things published in her lifetime. Um, and so I think um, that distinction between, you know, again, celebrity glory, um, these different kinds of publics that she's thinking about can help us to understand why, um, why she was so wary of publication in her lifetime. What's your favorite or most fascinating uh, correspondence from her epistolarium? Well, as I said, I think, you know, Grimm, I think, is the most exciting. And I think, um, you know, in, you know, I did with with, with my um, with my colleague, Andrew Kahn, um, we did a, um, a collection of selected letters um, by Catherine. We, we have a lot of the Grimm correspondence, although, again, that was very hard to translate because they're very long letters. And so we, we cut bits um, uh, of it uh, that we wanted to to. To use, and so I think I guess again that, that I think is really is really my favorite out of them, um, and so but um, but all of all of them have a particular you know that's that's the other thing about um, Catherine is that you, she has a very consistent image across all of the correspondences, and yet she's always a bit different in each of the correspondences. She always um, she's very sensitive to what's going to um, get across you know get her message across to this particular person. So I guess for me a lot of the pleasure, you know, and also what I'm trying to accomplish in this book, um, is to read multiple correspondences alongside one another, um, that, you know, that hadn't really been done before people would read just Voltaire or just Pachomkin. Um, and I think that putting them next to one another, you can see, you know, the full range of what she's able to accomplish with the letter. So I think that's a particular pleasure of it for me. Uh, and to wrap up, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, so I mean, I guess my interest in Catherine and epistolarity continue. Um, you know, I'm working, I'm actually working on an intellectual biography of Catherine because I think, you know, the more I worked on her, the more I realized how um, underestimated she's been as a thinker um, and the ways, you know, and also, you know, I'm sort of fascinated by we come to her assuming that the Enlightenment is, you know, a particular set of texts, right, that she's got to be reading, you know, obviously she does read Montesquieu, and Montesquieu is very important, but that, you know, that we only look for the ways in which particular texts that we can still consider to be important um, have shaped her, her intellectual world. And, but if you actually look at what she reads, she's reading lots and lots of things that we've never, ever heard of. She reads a lot of periodicals um, that, you know, you know, so she's reading you know, newspapers, but also, you know, just stuff that's being published in, um, uh, periodicals uh, and the ways, and I, so I think what I'd like to explore a bit more um, is how basically I'd like to sit down and read, um, you know, more of everything that Catherine herself had read um, and think about how that can help us to reconstruct, you know, the, the really uniquely uh, eclectic intellectual world um, that sort of shaped Catherine that she herself um, created. Uh, and so that, and also again, to, to sort of make the case that she really is a thinker in her own right that you know she, that she's not just someone who's passively accepting other people's ideas um, so that, that's that's sort of a big project that that will will take me some time um, but that I think is very important 
Uh, so today I've been speaking with Kelsey Rubin Datelev of the University of Southern California about her 2019 book, The Epistolary Art of Catherine the Great, which is now available from Liverpool University Press. Uh, Dr. Rubin Datelev, thank you very much again for joining me today. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.